Today our message is based on verse 16, what really has to be the world's greatest gospel text. It's usually a good starting point when you're trying to witness and just to find out where they are at. Now, anyone who does not know John 3.16 usually does not know the gospel at all. But we can say that anyone who does know John 3.16, and even it was all they knew, they would have every element of the gospel required in 25 words that we could certainly have hope that if they know John 3.16, if they prayed over it and asked for God to work in them what this text says, we would have every hope that they are saved. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth on him should not perish, but have everlasting life. This is the first text that I ever preached. When I was just two years after conversion, at the age of 20, I was asked by the youth fellowship in my home church, in Oma Free Presbyterian Church, to preach at a youth meeting. And it was a youth outreach evangelistic meeting. And we all tried to invite our friends. I invited my past friends from the Young Farmers Club. And as I took up that text, and I have no idea how I preached it, no notes referring to it now, that's 47 years ago. Well, the Lord helped. And there was a young boy in that meeting who responded to the message of the gospel and sought the Lord for salvation. And that became a very strong indicator that God might just be calling me to preach the gospel. Now, may God today, by His Spirit, use this text in every heart, saved and unsaved alike. We're never weary of preaching the plain, simple truths of the gospel to those that are saved. And whether you're like me, a fairly long time on the Christian road, or whether you're somewhere in between, or a new convert, I trust that God will take this text, write it on your heart. And if you're a seeking soul, may God graciously work and speak in your soul today. Now, let me give you my outline, first of all. There are multitudes of outlines on John 3.16, but it will surprise you how many mature preachers have been in the ministry for a long time, and they've never preached on John 3.16. Some find it too challenging, and it is. But here's my outline today. The Lord Jesus is the Father's Son of infinite love. When you want to know God's love, we've got to see His Son. The Lord Jesus is the Father's gift to His believing people, whosoever believeth. The Lord Jesus is the Father's bearer of His holy, terrible wrath that we should not perish. And then I have a fourth point. 
The Lord Jesus is the Father's guarantee of eternal life. Now, I'm going to beg your indulgence that we might go through these points and seek to suck the honey out of this wonderful text. Jesus is described here as the Father's only begotten Son. That simply means that He is God's equal. The Greek term is monogenia, and it simply means the same. When God gave His Son, He gave His other self. And Jesus is the darling of the Father's bosom. I think we find it hard to grasp the Trinity. We find it hard to grasp how each person in the Trinity has personality. They dwell as a family. They dwell in communion. There is a window into this in the book of Proverbs, chapter 8. And I'd like us to take the time to look at these verses in Proverbs 8, beginning at verse 24. And there we begin to see the communion, the family conversation that was between the Father and the Son. Now, this is obviously the Old Testament, book of Proverbs, written by Solomon. And the references in this text even goes back to creation. Goes back to creation. So, Proverbs 8.24, let you to follow with me. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no fountains abounding with water, before the mountains were settled, before the hills, was I brought forth. While as yet he had not made the earth, nor the fields, nor the highest part of the dust of the world. When he prepared the heavens, I was there. When he set a compass upon the face of the depth, when he established the clouds above, when he strengthened the fountains of the deep, when he gave to the sea his decree that the water should not pass his commandment, when he appointed the foundations of the earth, then I was by him as one brought up with him, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him. And there we see this blessed, sacred communion, this counterflow of love between the Father and the Son. The Father taking His delight, the Scripture says, in His Son. And likewise, the Son glorying in His Father. So, it was a family love. It was a reciprocal love. The love of the Father toward the Son counterflowed backward unto God the Father. And the Son loved the Father to the same degree, infinitely, as the Father loved the Son. There's also an immeasurable love between them because it was between two eternal persons, both God, both without beginning and without end, and so it is an immeasurable love. 
And that's where we really come short. There's none of us here today that has grasped the extent, the measure of God's love that John 3.16 speaks about. God so loved. There is no way to calculate it or measure it. You cannot quantify this. It is beyond human love. Even the love of husband and wife, father, mother, little children, grown children, family love. If you were to multiply the love that flows between every human on earth on any point of time, it would fall short of the measure of God's infinite love. The source of it, of course, is God himself, because the Bible says God is love. That's one of his perfections. He cannot be but good and the God of love. Now, in that background, I want to take you to John 15, verse 9. And when we at least attempt to grasp the nature, the immeasurable love of God, and then we see that flowing between the Father and the Son and the Son to the Father. But in John 3.16, it flows to us. For God so loved the world. And we are in focus here. But in John 15.9, as the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. Now, mark that, John 15, 9. With the same vast, to human minds, immeasurable love that flows between the heart of the Father to the Son, that flows to us. As the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. Can you grasp that today? Can you take that in? Can you figure that out in your mind? All the elect people of God's love, whom he sets his love upon, whom he decrees to eternal life, to full salvation and one day glory, that vast, sacred, infinite love is poured out upon us. Now, all the people whom the Father hath given to the Son are loved with that same love, and it's described in John 3.16 as so love. And you today, Christian, are so loved. Now, as a Christian, you have already tasted and seen. You have experienced that love flowing into your souls. But we have not yet entered into the fullness of it. And for all eternity in the future, we will dwell in and enjoy 
the ongoing, flowing love of God into our souls. We have to say, the end is not yet, and the best is yet to be. And so, take delight in this amazing love that Jesus is the Father's infinite love. Number two, the Lord Jesus is the Father's gift to his believing people. Now, you may be asking, who are those people whom the Father loves? They are described here as the world, but we know that that does not mean universalism. I remember going to a street mission one time in Vancouver to sit in, finding out what was going on, and in came, was scheduled for that day or that evening, a lady preacher. Fair enough. It's a mission. It's not a church. And if she's got an evangelistic message, I'll listen to it. But during the course of that message, she told those poor, needy souls, we are all the children of God. And of course, that's the lie that puts people into the zone of contentment that they stop even seeking after God's mercy and God's salvation. We know that God has in this world an elect people. Out of every nation and tongue and people, He is calling them. You ask me, who are those elect? I don't know. But once they believe, whosoever believeth, they are the very subjects of God's amazing and wonderful love. None are left out who believe. None are sent away if they come by faith and repentance toward the gospel. And of course, the Lord Jesus is the gift of God. He gave His only begotten Son. And our Lord Jesus is a covenant Savior. Do I need to qualify that? I think everyone here today would understand that God in eternity made an agreement, a covenant with His Son, and He said, you go down and you take those people, represent them, and you do the work that they can't do, you live the life that they can't live, you die the death that they need to be redeemed, you rise again from the dead. The contract between the Father and the Son was an amazing, all-encompassing agreement that Jesus would do the work and fulfill the work of redemption. We have a covenant Savior, an agreement that was made between the Father and the Son, and when we have Christ, we have every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. It's the great package of all that is required to bring a sinner out of the pit of sin and one day present them spotless before the Father in glory. Now, we have that hope today because God gave His Son. He appointed His Son. He covenanted with His Son. He sent Him down, the second person of the Trinity, to become man, take our nature, be our mediator, and be our everything. What a gift. 
If you have Jesus, you have every blessing. And so, believer, take delight in this. Cling to your Savior with rest and with delight. Number three, the Lord Jesus is the bearer of the Father's wrath. And we're told here that whosoever believeth should not perish. What? You might ask, did Jesus teach that a man or a woman, a boy or girl, could lose their soul and perish? What's in that word perish? What does it really mean? Is it figurative? Is it literal? Is it something that could be just uh, a pressure tactic to try and persuade men to believe on the Lord Jesus? The word perish in Greek is, I'll spell it for you, because maybe I can't pronounce it so well, A-P-P-O-L-U-M-I, apolumai. And it is used many, many times in the New Testament. Now, that's a great help, because when you're studying words in the Bible, and you've only got one word in the New Testament, well, you have nothing to compare it with. You can't say how it was used in other contexts. You've only got one occasion. But when you've got a word that is scattered all over uh, the New Testament, and you can see that it's used consistently in the same way to mean the exact same thing, time after time, you can come to a firm conclusion what it really means. Now, Jesus came to souls to keep them from perishing, which is hell for both body and soul. Now, how do I come to that conclusion? Because when the Lord Jesus defined this term apolumai, or the word perish, he said this in Matthew 10, verse 28. Now, you might be looking that up, and I'm going to just give you a few seconds by saying something here. Sometimes in our English Bible, a Greek term is used variously. In other words, it could have a different English word. One of the great benefits of the English language is you have synonyms, words that stack up side by side with a word and mean very close to the same thing. And when translators take uh, the words of the Bible from one language into English, they're going to use that word in a different way sometimes. Now, in John 10, 28, the word apolumai is, is interpreted destroy. It is translated destroy. And fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body. Now, if the Lord Jesus had stopped there, we might have to back off. But then he went on to say, in hell. 
destroying both soul and body in hell. We know that hell is a place of consciousness. It is also a place of physical suffering, and certainly will be after the judgment day on that great resurrection day when God casts into the eternal lake of fire the wicked who knew not God. Now, I'm saying all of this to just simply point out this. John 3.16, the word perish means to be destroyed, body and soul, in the torments of hell. Jesus came into the world to stop souls from perishing. And he came into the world to be the bearer of our hell. And he did so by taking upon himself not just the legal identity of sin, but when he was on the cross during those hours of darkness, our sins were laid on him. He became sin for us. That's 2 Corinthians 5, 21. Jesus was made to be a mass of sin. The sins of every one of his people, of all for whom he contracted with the Father, I will become their Redeemer. I will do the work to purchase them of, from destruction and save them from wrath. I'll take their sin upon my body. And there on that cross was the unfolding of the deliberate plan of the Father and the Son to suffer wrath, to take our hell in his own body that we might totally be set free. And so you can say today as a believer in the Lord Jesus, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that I might not be destroyed in hell in the lake of fire for all eternity. And he did that at the cross when he died in my place. Our hymn, There is a Green Hill Far Away, says, where the dear Lord was crucified, who died to save us all. We may not know, we cannot tell what pains he had to bear, but we believe it was for us he hung and suffered there. He died that we might be forgiven. He died to make us good, that we might go at last to heaven, saved by his precious blood. Oh, dearly, dearly has he loved, and we must love him too and trust in his redeeming blood, and try his work to do. And do you see the power of this gospel in 25 words? Do you see how every term is filled and loaded with meaning? And it gives us a sight of the Savior's work on our behalf. Now, I thank God today for this gospel. 
And I thank God for those who came and preached this gospel to me when I was a worldling, when I had nothing but the dazzling glitter of the world before my eyes. Someone came and told me the good news that Jesus saves from hell, He saves from sin, and He sets us free. And so we are set about to preach this gospel. We are Reformed. We are fundamentalists. And I know that era has somewhat passed, but if you go back to the 1920s, the fundamentalists were those who were battling for the inspiration of the Bible. They were battling for the virgin birth of Christ, for His full deity and godhood. They were battling for the right, uh, the depravity of man that He needs to be changed by the gospel. We are conservative. We are doctrinal. We are separated. That means we're not going to line up with somebody that doesn't preach this gospel. As Paul said, we are separated unto the gospel. I'll separate from anything that hinders me from preaching this gospel. If they're trying to tug my coat and drag me down, I'll stay away from it, that I might always have the liberty to preach this gospel. And we pray that in the coronation of King Charles III that we'll always have this liberty, this Protestant biblical gospel liberty to preach the good news that the Lord Jesus Christ saves. And it's the good news that a Savior stands between me and hell. I'll never be in hell. I'll never taste one drop of God's wrath that is due to me because Jesus bore it all. He put out the fire of wrath. It's gone. There's no more wrath for me. Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. We move to our point number four, that the Lord Jesus is the Father's guarantee of eternal life. Allow me to finish the text, that we should not perish, but have eternal life. How can I know I have eternal life? We need faith, whosoever believeth, faith in the Lord Jesus. He is the guarantee. My faith is not in men. My faith is not in the church. My faith is not in church men or women. My faith is in the Lord Jesus. He is my guarantee, and He guarantees my life. Now, the Bible says, the soul that sinneth shall die. Sin equals death. The wages of sin is death. But our Lord Jesus never sinned. And therefore, He is life, and He has the power to give life. And when we trust in Him, we have the guarantee of eternal life. Jesus' atoning death is my guarantee of full reconciliation with God. That's the great gospel word, you know, in the New Testament, reconciliation. 
The word atonement only comes up once in the New Testament. But many times you have this word reconciled through his blood. And that equals atonement. Because what happens when you believe in the Lord Jesus, you as a sinner are made at one with God. The distance between you and God is over, and you are reconciled. And we can say that there's nothing between my soul and the Savior or the Father. We are at one. Jesus made atonement. The purpose of his bloodshedding was to cover over our sins. And when God sees the blood of his Son, he does not see our sin. That is the guarantee of eternal life. Now, Jesus' resurrection is also the guarantee of eternal life. 1 Corinthians 6.14, God hath raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. How many times we've had to stand at a graveside and see the soil tossed back upon that casket. I think there is no more difficult moment than to see that grave being backfilled and that body is left in the cold earth. But the gospel hope is this grave shall open one day, this body shall rise, there will be a resurrection day. And we can only say that because our Lord Jesus is himself already risen. How could we preach the resurrection of of dead soul bodies if we had not a Savior who himself is risen from the dead? Now, I think our, well, we're getting close to the ending time, so, but I think we have time to go to 1 Corinthians 15 and to look at verse 20 to 23, the classic great resurrection passage in the Bible. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 20. Now, I could stand here and say, you know these things, and I know you know them, and we've all read them at some point or other and heard them at some point or other, but we need to, we need to rehearse them. We need to meditate on them. 1 Corinthians 15, 20, but now in, is Christ risen from the dead? But now is Christ risen from the dead. That's a truth. That's a fact. There is no question about that. The body of the Lord Jesus is raised up. The disciples saw him. They touched him. They believed on him. They were willing to lay down their lives preaching the doctrine of the resurrection of Jesus, the Son of God. It's a great fact. The fact that he is risen leads to this and become the firstfruits of them that slept. That means many more are going to rise from the dead. Slept means death. And they are the firstfruits. He's the, he's the firstfruits of many 
many more. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. Now, the first man there is Adam. He's the one that brought death upon the world. He broke that covenant of works with the Father. He brought death and sin and misery into this world. One man brought death, and one man brings the power of resurrection. And that's explained in verse 22, for as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Now, the first all is all the sons of Adam. The second all is all that the Father gave the Son, all that have been covenanted by the Father, given to the Son, and for whom Christ died and rose again, all of them. Isn't that sweet? I should see you rejoicing, jumping up and down in your seat. That includes me, all. All of us are going to be raised up. And Jesus said, I will lose nothing, not one of his sheep for whom he died. And then verse 23, but every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ's at his coming. And the believer's response is, I can't wait. I can't wait. We're all living in the struggles and cares of Christian living here on earth, waiting for that glorious day. And we must not lose sight of that. John 3.16 has that day built in, the guarantee of eternal life. What a wonderful day that's coming. And with those that are heartbroken at the loss of loved ones, and every year seems to bring its, its harvest of death in this world, but this is the Christian hope. This is why we do not sorrow as others who have no hope. And I trust that this comforts your heart today and cheers you. And so this is our gospel. And Paul said, though I preach the gospel, I have nothing to glory of, for necessity is led upon me. Yea, woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. Just 25 words, and it's all in there. And if someone were saying to me in their dying breath, I have read John 3.16, I believe it, I've cried out and prayed it, I would say there is great hope of that soul in heaven. This is a wondrous text. And did you know that there is no text, John 3.16, in hell? Sometimes we travel around and we see gospel posters and, and billboards, but in hell there is no John 3.16, because there's no Savior in hell. There's no cross in hell. There's no cleansing blood in hell. Hell is the eternal state 
the great gulf fixed that no man can move, and those that perish, perish. The, the unclean remain filthy still. Now, God's saving purpose stops at the gates of hell. And this is the urgency of the gospel. It's the urgency to you as a sinner, if you be unsaved, why you must today cry out to the Lord for salvation. It's the urgency of evangelistic work. It's the urgency of the church at prayer. It's the urgency of the uniting together as soldiers of the cross to take this gospel into the world. And so this is the day of hope. And you can be full of hope today if you will just do one thing. Put your name in John 3.16 where the whosoever stands. For God so loved the world that if Susan or Andrew or Jane or Robert, whatever your name might be, if you will put your name in there and pray that, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that if Ian believeth in him, shall not perish. My faith is a word-based faith. We'll talk about that tonight. Faith is not a leap in the dark. It is confidence in the truth of Scripture and the Christ of Scripture. May you be saved, and may you enjoy your salvation. May you be at peace in the gospel that you profess, and enjoy all the blessings that come to you, every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Our closing hymn today is number 295. 295. Full salvation, full salvation. Lo, the fountain opened wide, streams through every land and nation from the Savior's wounded side. We'll sing just two verses, one and two.
Father, we thank Thee today for worship based on the work of our Lord Jesus. We offer to Thee today our praises for all that we have in our Lord. And we thank Thee, our Lord Jesus, that You so loved us. Father, You so loved us that You went to the cross, that You bore our sin in Your own body, and there is no more condemnation. Thank You for the peace that this brings into our souls. Thank You for the boldness that it gives us to tell a lost world that Jesus saves. And we pray that it will ever be our foundation of faith until that day when we are raised up in the glorious likeness of our Lord and Savior. We would pray today, even so come, Lord Jesus. Fulfill Thy will. Let Thy kingdom come. Let Thy will be done. Bless every heart, every home represented here today. And now bless us as we part. May the grace of our Lord Jesus, the love of God, the communion of the Holy Spirit be with your redeemed now and evermore. Amen.